Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the May 12, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. Today, we devote the full hour to UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer. You've likely already heard him or seen him on all sorts of media platforms. We're fortunate to hear him today offer his latest compelling insights about the pandemics he has known, including the ones we're all sharing right now. We'll be right back after a station break. Welcome back to the show. In this age of COVID, epidemiologists are the Cassandras we simply cannot pay enough attention to. As listeners recall, Cassandra told not only prophecies, but ones that were as true as they were horrific. And the prophecies are ignored. My guest for the full hour is UCI epidemiologist Andrew Neumer, fitting us in while his work is getting a great deal of attention in media platforms nationally and internationally. We're so fortunate to have him with us today. Andrew has appointments in public health and sociology at UC Irvine. His research interests include health and mortality, especially selective mortality and multi-cause interaction, the 1918 influenza pandemic, demography, methods, mathematical sociology. Just the man for these moments. Andrew Neumer completed his bachelor's in biology at Harvard, his master's of science in medical demography at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and his PhD in sociology at UC Berkeley. We'll talk first about general trends and then focus on how Orange County's institutions and culture are responding amidst this COVID pandemic. And given that details of the pandemic continue to change, we'll note throughout the interview that Andrew is sharing with us what is known today, May 8, 2020. He comes to us today from atop the faculty ghetto hill. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Andrew Neumer. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be on the mighty KUCI. Thank you. Well, this Andrew, is an era you've long been preparing for. I guess I'll take this opportunity to get into your head before getting into the heads of our listeners. When was this novel coronavirus first on your radar? It was first on my radar in early January. There were reports coming out of Wuhan, and as we all now know, but uh, in early January, there was some reports, and I remember talking to some epidemiology friends of mine. And the original reports were something to do with a seafood, live seafood market or a seafood market. And as it turns out, that seafood market is actually just a a market for all sorts of, you know, uh, food. It's not just seafood. The seafood is is purely the name. It's civets and pangolins and all that. Well, I mean, it's not not exactly clear what's sold there. Uh, But yes, I mean, the point is, it's not just a seafood market. And I remember someone saying, you know, that's unusual for, you know, a marine life animal to uh, uh. convey a virus to a human, I mean, which is indeed unusual, although not completely unprecedented. But, and of course, this was just a confusion on, on our parts about, you know, what was, 
what the nature of this establishment. So I remember talking to an epidemiology friend of mine about that. And, and then a few days later, it was clear that this was a real you know, thing in terms of an emerging infectious disease. And then a few days after that, it was, it was clear that the, uh, the seafood name was simply a red herring as you, as, as to mix was... the metaphors there, but, uh, the, uh, you know, and, and, and after that we started taking it seriously. And, and then I started kind of tweeting about it in mid January and being quite concerned. And by the end of January, I was actually exasperated about the fact that people weren't taking it seriously enough. And I, t- I tweeted something on, uh, on the evening of January, January 31st. Your pin tweet, and, give it to yeah, us. Yes, my pin tweet. Let me actually just read it to you so I can make sure I, I say it right. It says, January 31st, 2020, duct tape your underpants. 2020 is going to be a wild ride. Hashtag coronavirus, hashtag coronavirus outbreak. So having observed what happened with SARS and the Hong Kong flu at NK... Well, the, the Hong Kong flu was 1968, was H3N2. Oh, oh, I'm thinking the maybe, other one. You may be referring to the 2009 pandemic of H1N1 or... Right, right, that one. Those, those two that... So that... Oh, and as well, actually go, go back to the, on the African continent, the Ebola outbreak, or I guess the two of them that... It seemed like okay. It's that there's gonna the breaks are gonna get applied. It's not gonna become a full-on international pandemic. But so when, as your radar is fine-tuning that there isn't any pickup of attention over here, where did you see that this is gonna be one in unhinged number for us all to contend with? Or well, that's I, where the duct tape came out. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean that tweet was born of frustration. I mean, by then I already was quite fearful of. That, that this was going to spread. And, you know, the, the, um, the thing that was so frustrating, uh, to be honest ab- about it, was the number of people who kept pushing back and saying things such as, do you have your flu shot? Because if you don't have your flu shot, you have no right to be worried about this emerging disease, which isn't going to kill you, but the flu could kill you. And things like, do you have any idea how many people die of flu every year and flu, 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 flu. And it just drove me crazy because, mm. you know, the, the first instance of saying, well, if, if you didn't get your flu shot uh, and theref- therefore shut up is, is kind of not very uh, intellectually honest and it's not very, you know, productive. And it, it's just, it's, it's really a, a pity that people have to say things like that. And then the, uh, you know, the things like these rhetorical questions, like, do you know ha- how many people die of flu every year? Well, I do know how many people die of flu every year because I have produced some of those estimates myself right, right, right. In, in my professional work. And, and I knew that this had capacity to kill far more people than flu kills um, in a given year. And in fact, that has come to pass already. But, uh, you know, and um, I gave a talk at UC Irvine on... I want to say it was a Thursday. I, let me check. It was, I, I alluded to this in one of my subsequent tweets. It was Thursday, the 30th of, of January. So it was the day before my duct tape tweet. And I, someone asked me, how many people will this kill? And I said, up to a million. That's when you first and, started using a million. Yeah, okay. Yeah. And, and uh, so that was January 20th and or, pardon me, January 30th. 30th. Yeah. And, and uh, 
you know, I, I learned subsequently after, after the fact that some of my interlocutors assumed I was talking worldwide. And oh, I'm, that got missed too. And, and, I, and I meant, oh. I, I definitely, my, my intention was the USA. And of course, that's a, that's a, a very different complexion, whether it's worldwide or in, in a single country. And, you know, I, re, I regretted not having made that more clear because, um, you know, even on January uh, 30th, I said there, this, this could cause a million deaths in the U.S. And the reason I said that and the reason I, you know, was uh, really kind of supercilious about the, the flu comparisons is that, you know, we have flu every year and, and flu confers immunity. If you had the flu three years ago, or if you had the flu two years ago, or if you had the right. flu la last year, you're really a lot less likely to get it this year because you have immunity. People don't get the flu every year. They just get the flu some years. Not to mention the fact that we do have a flu vaccine, and I'm not... Right, there's that. Uh, I'm not, uh, I'm just, I, I just didn't like that sort of response, but we do indeed have a flu vaccine. So the point is, and for this thing, it's a new, it's a new virus, and it's nobody... Yeah, nobody has that immunity because they had it three years ago or because they had it two years ago or because they had it last year or because they got the vaccine because there is no vaccine. So I knew that this virus had like a wide open field to, to run, uh, you know, in the, in the U.S. And, and indeed worldwide. So I was like, well, you know, this could infect, you know, 70% of the U.S. population by the time it's over. And and I still believe that. And those numbers, yeah, I see that you still are holding with that, 75, yeah. 70%. So I guess that there's two things that I didn't anticipate going just deeply into it, but I guess if there was a kind of a deniability, a denialism of even those that intellectually were prepared, but were some, they were being dishonest because they, they felt like, well, we got, we got those other outbreaks. They never got here. The, that we put the brakes on the outbreaks. And I'm also wondering, Andrew, if there isn't a, also that practicing, the exercise of denying that the climate hazards are, they're, they're gonna be dealt with. I've heard really smart people say, but we'll, we'll solve it scientifically. So I wonder if there's this kind of sort of slow reaction, denying that the hazards that are present that at our doorstep or in the house at this point. I'm just, I wonder if those factors don't help us understand why there was no pickup. Well, yeah, the, I mean, the, the people who said, oh, don't worry about this, worry about flu. I mean, they certainly were, I mean, to use your term, denying it, but. I th Dismissing. I think, yeah. yeah, I think they were speaking in good faith, to be, to be honest, but they showed a, a complete lack of imagination about, you know, what, it, what a new virus means. And you know, including a lot of people who I think should have known a lot better. But, um, and I, I don't know how, how strongly the parallels are, though, to... To, to the, the other climate. outbreaks? Yeah, well, oh, or the, to the, 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 the... Okay. Yeah, yeah. But, but I, have, I have heard, I'm, I'm thinking of specific instances where the faith in science, and I guess that's a mixed metaphor, too, but the faith <laughs> in science was that it will be solved. So, you know, don't you all, don't change your lifestyles, you know, continue to do everything as you're doing because we'll, we'll capture all this carbon. So don't worry about it, we got this. So sort of that, if that kind of building, but I'll, I'm gonna get into some other kinds of sort of cultural uh, mentalities that are kicking in that are, 
have uh, interfered in, to some extent too. So I, so you've talked about rumors and disease going viral at the same time. You've done research on flattening the urban legends, urban transmission curves. Do you want to say anything about how that's looking in 2020? Uh, I mean, the the work I've done on the transmission of urban legends and the transmission of rumors really is there to highlight the fact that the rumors spread, you know, like an infectious disease right. spreads from person to person and they're sort of contagious. And, and just as you get infected with an infectious disease, when you hear a rumor, you, you, you're infected in a sense that you want to, you want to tell someone else, you know, uh, this juicy rumor. Um, so there are parallels between rumors of infectious disease, and of, and of course there are rumors about infectious disease, uh, in terms of you know I don't know people have theories about this that or the other thing, uh, but um, I'm I'm not sure in the for me personally as a as a scientist who studied both rumors and epidemiology and who sees the parallels for me the twain haven't met necessarily in this in this epidemic because I haven't been preoccupied with the rumors, rumorology sort of side of it. I mean, that hasn't been my focus here. And I, and I know, you know, early on, I was on a panel at UC Irvine on February 10th, and, and there was quite a bit of discussion about rumors about the disease on that panel, although I was not the panelist who, who was discussing that aspect of it. So like I say, the twain haven't really met here. I, I mean, I they think we're, in, yeah, we're, we're in, we're in a, um, I mean, there've been some, some interesting rumors, but I mean, mostly I think there's actually been quite a lot of good information and some bad information, it must be said, but quite a lot of good information getting out there to, to the public during this unusual time. Well, I guess uh, there, it's again anecdotal and that drives quantitative people like you, I'm sure, crazy when somebody brings up a, an anecdotal point that I know where an instance where a germaphobe got though got that rumor, got in behind the rumor curve and just, just dispensed with disinfecting anything because what they heard on Fox. So I'm just thinking of that. That's, that's one case in point there. So let us then, um, I'd like to talk about the social aspect, that it's the social aspect of your public health work. And I'm curious about, Andrew, your thinking, your observations of while we continue to fly blind, how do you experience the adaptive, collaborative opportunities that are being taken up around the country? Well, I mean, we're flying blind in, a, in the sense that we're doing an epidemic in, uh, or pandemic in real time. Yeah, right. and, it's, and it's not a desktop exercise, it's, a, it's, it's real. And it's, uh, and it's not a, 2009 swine flu pandemic, but it's a, it's a pandemic that's, you know, at least one order of magnitude and perhaps two orders of magnitude more severe than that one. So, you know, that in that sense, we're flying blind. And in another sense, we're flying blind because I've really been disappointed in the government response in terms of getting uh, first the PCR testing and now, you know, zero surveys up and running uh, and, and sort of live. And so that blinds us because there's information out there that we could be accessing that we're not accessing. And it's, 
Um, you know, the, uh, the original testing snafu, you know, is, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, th I think there was uh, partly, you know, people just got caught a little flat-footed by this and partly there was some technical difficulties with the test kits, which, you know, I mean, it's the nature of the beast in, in encountering a technical problem that it, it sort of could happen to, to any, to, you know, to anyone. And I mean, it happened to the U.S. I mean, it, um, we're not the only country that's had problems getting testing up to speed, but certainly um, we should expect better given that we're generally regarded as a leader in, in the world of, of health. So, I mean, it's regrettable. And then the second round of, you know, I don't know why there aren't more nationally representative or there, there aren't nationally representative CIRA surveys out yet that have been conducted by the CDC. I mean, that's uh, mystifying to me. So, mm. I mean, that's, that's been a disappointment. And, we're, and in some sense, we're flying blind because there's sort of this fog of war that Clausewitz described, except it's a fog of epidemic. It's, in other words, somewhat inevitable that as we play out an epidemic in real time, and f and for real, not as a desktop exercise that that will be blind to some aspects of it, and then other you know, other things are sort of it's a it's a great pity that that there's information out there waiting to be collected and we haven't collected it. But uh, but we're not entirely blind. I mean, we do know. I mean, it's, it's hard to discern the shape of the river that lies ahead of us entirely, but we do know, you know. Well, you can talk to that at, at yeah. the um, the test results that it in talking about those two tests. So what we what we do know now, we do have an opportunity to understand that that immunity. It's not a matter of how severe the COVID case was. It's a matter of testing at the right time when every uh, it's two to three weeks past the last of the symptoms where those antibodies are the most accurately posted, or, or I don't know the term for, uh, clinically, but where the, the, the most accurate count, accounting for the antibodies. So it's not by the case, type of case, it's by duration post case. Well, we didn't uh, know that before. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of, un, I mean, we're working out those sort of, th those are sort of tech, technical, that's sort of sand in the gears, to, to be honest. These okay. are sort of, these are sort of minor technical issues about uh, perfecting the, the ELISA test for the antibodies or perfect, you know, or, or, or figuring out when the optimal time is post-infection. I mean, we know that viral infections generate an antibody response, and we know that people who survive COVID infection aren't walking around every day with a higher and higher and higher viremia. I mean, I mean, it's just sort of the nature, it's sort of undergraduate textbook biology that, that you, you generate an antibody response, which clears the infection. And so, you know, being able to confirm that it, you need to wait three weeks or, or that we need to do this, that, or the other thing to the, to the antibody test. I mean, that's important for my colleagues who spend their times, you know, working in the lab, uh, you know, perfecting these tests without okay. which, you know, we wouldn't have a lot of information. But as, as far as like what KUCI listeners need to know about where we go from here and like, and the things that are going to affect their workaday lives from here on out, you know, I wouldn't say that the technical aspects of the test really matter at, at all, to be honest. Okay, well, that's, that's very important. So to go back to the sort of cultural backdrop of the adaptive ability of the public to do things differently. I mean, there, there were so many new things and to understand that 
the previous life, that adaptability that that previous life is a relic, a complete relic. So there's there's a the cultural backdrop. I think is really interesting, Andrew. And I'm when I see the women that are running <laughs> Taiwan, Denmark, Finland, Germany, Iceland, and New Zealand and Norway, and I'm I'm concerned that they have a cultural advantage to get their populations on board with there's a predisposition for those cultures to dial up a kind of a community response to a necessity of some kind and so it's it's i don't think it's so much women that are running the show as much as there are cultures that are they're ready to respond when they were told to do something for collective action I mean, there there have been aspects of different countries' responses that have been somewhat predictable, somewhat unpredictable, some that can be sort of pretty well explained after the fact, even if they weren't predictable before the fact, and some that just mystify us. Correct. So, I mean... You know which ones those are. Well, Germany has been doing very well. But that's a chemist running them. Well, yeah, but I mean... I. I, I, I put Germany in the mystify us category. I mean, I, okay. I, I don't quite understand why Germany is doing as well as it is, given that it's surrounded by countries that um, are doing poorly and, uh, and borders these countries. Okay, good point. And, and I mean, Belgium is probably doing the worst uh, right now okay, in wow. terms of uh, they have the highest death rate. Now, of course, these death numbers, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later in the interview, but yes. the death numbers are really tricky to measure. So, these dashboard deaths, these deaths that appear on the dashboard, that, that's in some way the tip, tip of the iceberg. But the thing is, it's not the tip of the same iceberg in every country. So they're not some, comparable. Yeah, they're not. They're all. not really directly comparable. On, honestly, like you, we have to take everything with humongous grains of salt. But but I mean, be that as it may, you know, I mean, Be- Belgium has seven hundred and thirty-five deaths per million population so far. Uh, which is very high, and well, it's 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 one it's one it's the highest country. Let's put it that way. And you know, Belgium share shares a land border with you know Germany and France, and eastern France is is hardest. That's the part that borders Belgium is is the hardest hit. So, so that kind of makes sense. It's like well, that's clustering that, there. That part of Europe is is, but then Western Germany, which is the part of Germany that borders Belgium, you know, is not as hard hit. So, I mean, there are clearly country differences, but in in ways that we don't understand. And mm. you know, you mentioned Germany, so I don't understand why Germany is doing as well as it, as it is. Although I, I I I'm happy for them. Uh, you know, Taiwan is an island. It has right. one ma- major international airport. Its biggest trading partner is a country that went under a steel clad uh, lockdown and, you know, so on and so forth. South Korea shares is a peninsula. It has a land border that is with one country and that land border is closed famously. And they have a constant trepidation about nuclear, biological Mm -hmm. and chemical attacks from their noisy upstairs neighbor. And so they're constantly prepared for a biological attack from their upstairs neighbor and, a, and an emerging infectious diseases is, is shares some similarities with the biological warfare attack. So they're ready. You know, that's what I mean. The, the and, sort of collective action yeah, and readiness right. and a right. sort of a regimentation, a readiness to be regimented. 
Right. But then, yeah, but then again, so the reasons why Taiwan has succeeded and South Korea has succeeded and, you know, New Zealand, which again is an island and, you know, it's, it's as far as from anywhere in the world as you can get from, you know, everywhere else in the world. So, I mean, they're just these, these kind of sui generis kind of situations that add up to success in, in some cases. Another point to keep in mind is, you know, and New Zealand has a quarantine now. So any, anyone who comes into the country is sort of poked and prodded for temperature and, and, uh, and for two weeks, is it? Yeah. And they're, 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 yeah, people are quarantined for two weeks. So, I mean, New Zealand is, you know, sort of may have stumbled backwards into a a favorable situation, but they're act they're, they're acting very smartly to, to protect their natural advantage. But, um, but they are sort of relying on their natural advantage. And I mean, the United States doesn't, you know, isn't going to be able to New Zealand its way out of, out of this. And, and the other thing is time frame. I mean, so a vaccine can land like a ton of bricks and, and end this, but, you know. Uh, but we're going to get to that. We're going to talk about okay, the vaccine. Well, yeah. There's but, pieces of that. Yeah. But I mean, if, it, if that doesn't happen, then who's to say, you know, New Zealand won't have a bad outbreak. Oh, I mean, see, I like, see. Like, it's like the time horizon that's relevant here is you need to think about the long game, not just, you know, year to date. And Singapore, you know, was looking great for a while. And everyone knows that Singapore has a, a world-class health system. And that they're highly not, regimented too. And, and, and I mean, that's not, their middle name. Exactly. And, and an island. And it's an island and, you know, they, they have dengue outbreaks and they have a public health system that hops on those dengue outbreaks as soon as they happen because, I mean, I mean Singapore just has an outstanding public health infrastructure, okay? But now they have their own problems with SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19. So, you know, What's that? Well, they have, they have, they've had a, a, either a second wave or, or the first oh. wave has flared back up depending on how you want to call it. But I mean, Singapore was looking great early on and now is is looking not as great. So they've had challenges more recently, let's put it that way. And so, you know, we have to think in terms of unless this vaccine comes, you know, nobody's out of the woods, including Germany, you know, including any place. Uh, Right. So, so, I mean, constant vigilance is, is going to be necessary. And that, and then that'll get back to that cultural underpinning of, of the capacity to adapt and accommodate to, to deal with that uncertainty of duration of hunkering down in various ways that we're, we're just not accustomed. For those of you who've just joined us, my guest is Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. So I'm reading different releases of studies dealing with the RNA's ability, like a potential to to mutate or not to mutate. I don't know at this moment, at May 8, 2020, Andrew, are you concerned at this moment about that mutation possibility? I mean, I mean viruses mutate, uh, that's clear. The question is, will there be a change in, in virulence or gain of function as it's that's what it's called. called. Okay. So, and the answer is, I, I don't think so. In fact, viruses have a tendency to evolve towards less virulence. Now, that's not sort of a blanket statement, and um, hmm. you know, some of the examples I'll, I can you know give to you aren't 
necessarily predictive of what will happen here. Okay. Uh, but I'm not worried that it's going to get worse. Um, I mean, it's already, you know, a very real situation and it's already pretty bad, but I'm not right. worried it's going to get worse. I'm just worried that, um, you know, this virus is kind of in the sweet spot of being transmissible and being mild in many people and yet severe in others, that it, it's sort of like almost the perfect virus in that way. I mean, SARS in 2003, the, the original SARS, SARS-CoV-1 or SARS-CoV, the original SARS, the 2003 SARS, was, was more severe. But that meant that cases wound up in the hospital and where they, where they could be isolated. And it was more immediate, the onset, correct? Uh, was it? Is that another difference to consider? That was like, that's a third factor I didn't no, hear you say. I, no, the, 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 uh, I'm not sure the serial interval of SARS-CoV-1, but it, it wasn't markedly different. So, I mean, the difference was that it was more severe, that it, it, there, there were fewer asymptomatic cases mm -hmm. and it presented you know, with a more severe clinical syndrome. So okay. it, it, it wasn't necessarily as much in the sweet spot as this one is for, for spreading around the world. And we saw that SARS-CoV, uh, the original SARS kind of died out. Right. I mean, it was, it was, you know, Taiwan, Hong Kong, China, Canada. Korea. And Korea, yeah. And then it, it kind of fizzled. And, you know, this one, uh, not so much. So, but I don't think it's going to just mutate. I mean, people always ask about that, but I don't right, think it's I just going to mutate. And, you know, one thing to consider is now, as I said, you know, the experience that we had with, with the 1918 flu is not sort of predictive of what's going to happen here. But what we saw was, you know, the 1918 flu went away, but the virus didn't. It just evolved away. So in 1918, the H1N1 flu virus emerged and caused the 1918 flu pandemic. And H1N1 was the dominant or was serotype of influenza from that point until 1957, until the so-called Asian flu pandemic. And just as H1N1 emerged in 1918 and knocked the previously prevalent flu off its perch, H2N2 came in 1957 and knocked H1N1 off of its perch. But all the time from 1919 through 1957, H1N1 was still there. And what that was, was a direct descendant evolution wise of the Spanish flu virus. Uh, okay. The Spanish flu virus never went away. It just evolved away. You got new and names. It, and it evolved towards lower virulence. It evolved to be just the regular flu that we, uh, okay. that we know every winter. And so I really think there'll be three phases of, of this SARS-CoV-2. The first phase will be the pandemic phase, which we're in now. The second phase will be the seasonal phase where it becomes like a flu virus. It'll come back every winter, but, but not with enough strength to maintain transmission during the summer. And then it will eventually fade into like a background coronavirus. Like we have four species of coronavirus now, which cause the common cold. And they're sort of nuisance viruses in the sense that, you know, they don't cause a lot of morbidity collective. Well, collectively, they cause a lot of morbidity, but... Uh, on an individual person, they're, they're mostly just a common cold. So, so those three phases are evolving down as well. That's that's yeah, the term that's that, happening. Okay. I mean, that's that's my belief. I mean, there's there's a little bit of you know speculation there. Obviously, I mean, right. And, and and you know, we can talk about what the timeframes are of these three phases. But I'm not expecting 
evolution to, to a worseness. I'm expecting evolution to a, a milder form. So, well, you brought up the, the duration of those phases. So but break it to us. What's the, what's the first phase? The pandemic is your guess it's going to last. Anywhere from 12 to 48 months. Okay, and, I thought you'd say even longer, but okay, uh, yeah. So, so 12 to 48 Up months. Up to four and, years. And, yeah, and I don't mean that there's going to be four years e- is equally as severe as what the last eight weeks that we've gone through, or that, although, although there may be periods that are worse than the last eight weeks, but the point is, it's not going to be like a monotone thing or, or like a, a uniform thing. I mean, there's going to be ebbs and flows and peaks and troughs, and so... But I mean, I think there'll be four years of sort of unpredictability or up to four years. It could be as, li- as, Got it. It, yeah, it could be as little as one year, but there's going to be a period during the original pandemic where we have, there are going to be crests and there are going to be valleys and there, you know, we won't really know if the valley is the final valley until it sort of subsides. But every strategy is a herd immunity strategy. I mean, you're, the KUCI listeners have heard about right. her, the herd immunity strategy, but it's not the herd immunity strategy because every strategy is a herd immunity strategy. So, Good you know, point. until, until we reach herd immunity, there's going to be this, we're going to be in the pandemic phase. And the best way to get to herd immunity is through a vaccine. But when can I get the vaccine? I don't know. I'll tell you as soon as we know. So, well, know, so let's talk about that yeah. though. I mean, there, since some of the messiness of this pandemic are things that we couldn't, you said it, it just, it's the, unbelievably unexplained catastrophic aspect of the COVID pandemic right now is amidst the unwieldiness of dealing with this pandemic with so much uncertainty and the severity of the pandemic. So what kinds of opportunity costs? There's different kinds I'm trying to think of is that there are, there is no unified effort. It's a sort of a moonshot many countries are pursuing to find the vaccination. And as epidemiologists are, are talking to the press about is that the country that gets the vaccination, that develops it, is gonna be serving theirs first. And there's a distribution issue. What kind of a vaccine? How is it gonna be distributed? What will the supply chain be necessary to distribute that vaccine? So um, what there, there's that those kinds of opportunity cost of the sort of separate efforts and then while we're dealing with that moonshot, there are other public health crises that are opening up that have nothing to do with the pandemic. So I'm just wondering, the resources aren't limited. We're going through, a, well, burning through a lot. So I'm, pick your pick your opportunity costs first. Well, I mean, uh, so there's there's at least two questions. There. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so the the first, you know, let me let me walk the KUCI listeners through the way I think about the the vaccine. Because there's a lot of people have asked me like, well, if such and such country like patents it first, like, will we be able to get it? And, and my sort of working approach to the vaccine is I'm going to worry about all of those things when there's a vaccine. My colleagues in the, in the lab sciences who, who work on, you know, inventing vaccines against novel pathogens are working tirelessly around yes, the clock in many cases to, to find and, and then eventually test a vaccine against SARS-CoV-2 infection. And believe me, when there's a vaccine, we'll know about it. And uh, everything else is speculation. So- um, That's more sand on the gears. 
Yeah, I, th- okay. I, I think so. I mean, I mean, while we're speculating, I, I, I think we can, you know, while we're in the realm of speculation, I think I can speculate that, you know, if a certain country invents the vaccine, that they'll be able to license it to other countries to produce so that, yes, you know, country A is going to look after country A first, but it's, it's not a zero-sum game. You know, you know, they can license the vaccine to country B, C, and D to, okay. so, so that those countries can make their own version of the, of the, the vaccine that works. And, and if they won't, there's every incentive for countries to, in, in, to just infringe. So I, th- I think once we have the working vaccine, there will be enough, there will be a, a tremendous push to, to create a supply of it. But I'm kind of going, I mean, I don't wake up in the morning and think, oh, we're one day closer to a vaccine because I think that's, it's a very tempting thought, but you know, what we need to be working on now is how we're going to navigate slowly opening the economy and how we're going to protect ourselves and our household members. I mean, believe me, when the vaccine comes, we'll know about it, but I don't, I don't spend my time worrying about it. Now, the other part of that question was about health problems that have nothing to do with COVID. And there's, let me tell you something, there's no such thing right now as a health problem that has nothing to do with COVID. COVID is everything in the health space right now. You know, I've heard stories about people coming, diabetics coming to urgent care or the emergency department with, you know, a gangrenous foot because they were afraid to, you know, to, to get seen, you know, in the last, sometime in the last six weeks because of the COVID. Right. That is not unrelated to COVID. I mean, that gangrenous foot would normally have been, you know, that now needs to be amputated. It would normally have been looked after. Would have been treated. Would have been treated much before. So there's nothing that, that's unrelated to COVID. Even the, you know, the, the bacteria causing the, the, that foot infection are not related to the COVID virus. And the, and the diabetes that's at the heart of that matter, you know, was existing before the COVID showed up on our shores. But, but, but I mean, the, the totality of it is, is not at all unrelated. It's, it's very much related. So COVID is, is affecting health and health care in every way, shape, and form right now both in the U.S. and internationally. So I guess, but it's, this, it's stating it in a different way. And I know I, I defer to your immense training here, but I just, I see the others. There are, while we're dealing with COVID, so diabetes isn't being dealt with or cardiovascular, you know, morbidities, all those other morbidities aren't being dealt with. They're set aside. And so, so they, but... So they're, they're not about COVID. They are deferred. The care is deferred because of the attention to COVID. So I, I guess it's, um, I don't know if it's just slicing it differently. I don't, well, I mean, I guess my point is just that, you know, we have a health system that's trying to juggle too many things at, this, at, absolutely. at one time. Unaddressed and, and now the new emergency. Yeah. So, so I, mean, I mean, we can sp- split hairs and or argue you know, all day long. And I mean this rhetorically, obviously not you and me, but the point is like, you, you know, like the state of New Jersey. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like had uh, deaths in the month of April, 2020, that were approximately double the number of deaths that they had the same month in the previous year. That is staggering. And that is a large number of deaths. It is a large geographic area the state of New Jersey, which is both large and, and quite popu- populous. Mm-hmm. And and it's a, a time bin that is not just, you know, a single day or something. It's a, it's a month. 
Right. And so that is a very meaningful difference. And that is, a, uh, as a demographer who studies mortality, I can tell okay. you that that is a significant difference. And, you know, some of these deaths were accounted for with, with co- you know, by counting COVID. And some of them are just deaths that, you know, weren't counted as COVID, but I assure you are in some way, shape or form related to the COVID epidemic that, that New Jersey is having right now. So we'll have time to pour over the data, you know, later on and, try to figure out what, what's going on in terms of how many of those deaths were, you know, related to diabetes and how many of them appear to be just uh, pneumonia, which is very highly suspicious to be really a COVID death and so on and so forth. But you wouldn't have double the mortality in New Jersey on a month to month basis if it weren't for the COVID. And that's, in that sense, all the excess deaths are caused by COVID. Wow. So I guess to, to thread a lot of things that I wanted to make sure we covered, we were, t- we were going to get to how, how deaths are attributed. And so you're, you're answering that in a way when you're talking about the high amount of, uh, of deaths in New Jersey. And you were talking about the differences in the numbers in European countries, if, if they're reporting it differently. So I guess if you could, in a, in a very quick order, mm-hmm. if you don't mind, you could talk about the reporting of the cases one through four that you laid out in the, your recent Atlantic monthly article. The four types of, of, of COVID mortality, is that? Four cases. Yeah. Yeah. And so, and that will, that's going to drive how they're attributed to COVID or not. And, right. And, okay. And so com- making it comparable or not in over state by state, country by country and, year after year, I guess. Yeah. So the four, the four types of, of COVID mortality that I yes. uh, came up with, this was uh, something I tweeted on uh, originally on March 21st. So direct, 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 indirect, indirect, yes. and competing risks. So, all right. So let, let's, let me walk the KUCI listeners through those four types. So direct, direct are just deaths. Someone dies of COVID. There's all these dashboards. I mean, I assume your listeners are, are familiar with these and have, have been checking some of them themselves. But there's all these dashboards that are counting COVID deaths, and these are direct, direct deaths. So this is where someone died, and the death certificate says pneumonia slash COVID, or COVID slash pneumonia, or COVID, or something where there's an acknowledgement that this was COVID. And that's, those are the easiest to count, because you know, someone comes to the emergency department in respiratory distress, and they're you know, rushed to ICU, maybe they wind up on a uh, oxygen or a mechanical ventilator. And uh, let's just say for the sake of argument, they test positive for COVID and then they, they die. That's a direct, direct death. That's COVID. Now then there's, those are the easiest to count. And, but those are the tip of the iceberg, as I said earlier right, right. In, in, in this broadcast. So direct, indirect is these are deaths that are caused directly by the COVID. It's a COVID infection. That's at the heart of the matter, but there, but we're going to have to infer their, number using indirect methods because these are deaths that are attributed to flu that don't seem like they could possibly be flu uh, because they're occurring in July, let's say, or deaths that uh, are just coded as pneumonia. And so people are like, well, guess what? Pneumonia is not COVID. Pneumonia with no mention of COVID or heart disease with no mention of COVID, but any kind of death where COVID is in fact happening, but it's not rep- being represented on the death certificate. And those are going to require time 
and the cold light of day to analyze. Uh, people like myself and others who spend their time analyzing these large databases of mm -hmm. mortality, you know, we use models to look for, you know, increases in mortality that don't look like a normal circadian rhythm of mortality throughout the year. And that will, uh, that'll show, that'll show up, but it will okay. show up later when we can analyze the data, you know, dispassionately over like, a, like a, a two year time frame or well, yeah, that's what it would take. Not, I mean, not how long it'll take to find, but just to well, map it out. I mean, we're already doing some excess more. I mean, that, that New Jersey issue that I thumbnailed. The April to is, April. Yeah. That's already a type of indirect analysis. So, okay. I mean, there, there's no prescribed time frame that this is too soon or this is too late, but I mean, having a greater perspective on the time series is, is better. And then the, the, the next, the third uh, one, the third one is indirect and that's your diet. That's your sort of diabetes death. That's or, the gangrene that, set in. Yeah. They weren't seen. Exactly. Or the, the, the example I used in the original tweet was someone who's in an automobile accident who breaks his, his or her femur. Yeah. Uh, now a, a fractured femur is a very, very serious mm -hmm. because it's the, it's the long, longest and strongest bone in the body. And when it breaks, it's indicative of great trauma. And there's, there's a big artery there. There's a big artery. That's right. The femoral artery. And the femoral artery can be, can be severed by the, the bone fragments. And if that happens, people can die of, of internal hemorrhage, Quick. even though it's just a broken bone. Right. So uh, it's different than any other broken bone, really, in that respect. And so it's considered a, a, a severe medical emergency and it needs to be, you know, a, a fractured femur needs to be set. And hypothetically speaking, if, if someone comes to an, an emergency department that is inundated like Northern Italy was and doesn't get the immediate care that she needs, that femur could result in a mortality. Mm -hmm. Whereas under normal circumstances, you know, the emergency department knows exactly what to do with a fractured femur. So that would be an indirect death. A diabetes, a diabetes now we talked about a, a, an amputation, but you can imagine a, a, a mortality that results from something like that. Yeah. Some, from someone who neglects uh, going to primary care because of fear of contracting at the doctor's office and to the point where he or she neglects his or her diabetes or, or, or you name it long enough that it causes you know, life-threatening illness. Uh, so that would be an indirect death. And then there's competing risks. And let me just tell the KUCI listeners a little bit about competing, competing risks. risks. Please now, do. Competing risks is where it's actually a type of mortality that's really subtle to understand. But basically, you know, how do we know that so-and-so who died of COVID in, in May 2020 wasn't going to die of a heart attack in a heat wave in July 2020? This person was you know, had heart disease, had trouble breathing, was susceptible to severe complications of COVID, died of COVID. But at the end of the year, the death toll isn't going to be increased because this person would have died in the calendar year anyway. Good gosh. So we tend to add up deaths during calendar years. And some of these people who die of COVID you know, the, the Grim Reaper only gets one bite of the apple. So, so if some, an 87-year-old male who dies of COVID in, in May uh, 2020, demographers always do a thought experiment that 
we could save that life, but we only get to save it once. Right, right. And then what happens if we save that life from COVID now? Oh, well, that person dies of, of, you know, just for the sake of argument, that person dies of a heart attack during an August heat wave. And so at the end of the year, it doesn't matter. You either die of COVID in May or you die of heart disease or myocardial infarction in August. So the difference is two months of of life. Well, Well, that's competing risks. The thing is, we can analyze that because we can look at cause of death structures we can say, well, there were all these COVID deaths, but there were too few heart disease deaths. But this is something that we can only say after the fact when we can pour over the data. And there's been a lot of people saying that COVID is going to be all competing risks. And I guarantee you that that's not true either. So in other words, the, no, the only, that the only people who will die of COVID will be people who were so unhealthy that they had other conditions that would have killed them in 2020. And let me tell you something. In the United States in 2020, on January 1st, I would have told you that for the calendar year, I would expect about 3 million deaths in the United States. The crude mortality rate in the, in, in the recent years in the United States has been just under 1%. Okay. So uh, that's normal. That's 3 million. Mm-hmm. About, you know, a little bit less than 1% of the population dies every year. We have a large population, 328 million people. That generates a large number of deaths. We have an old population that we have a, he- a heavyweight uh, structure of, Increasingly. Of, ba- of baby boomers, right, who are getting older, born from 46 to 64. And so, you know, mortality is just part of society. It's part of life. Everyone who's born will someday die. And, you know, it's not unusual to have 3 million deaths and, and it, a year in the U.S. And if we finish 2020 with 3 million then, well, I'll, first of all, I'll be astonished. But second yeah. of all, that will be... We're past would, it. Well, yeah, we are. But that would be a, an example of competing risks. Where Correct. You say, all of those COVID deaths were people who were going to die anyway. They just died of one thing instead of... You're robbing Peter to pay Paul, so, so to speak. I understand, right. But uh, I, what I, I think will happen is instead there'll be 3.1 million deaths this year, meaning an excess of 100,000, or there'll be 3.2 meaning in excess of, of 200,000, mm-hmm. or there'll be 3.3 million deaths in, in calendar year 2020, meaning in excess of 300,000, or potentially more, to, to be quite candid. So, you know, we won't know until a little bit later exactly what that f- factor is. I guarantee you it'll be over 3 million. And if we come in at 3.3 million deaths, namely 300,000 excess deaths, it doesn't mean that there wasn't this competing risk factor. We still may see puzzlingly few heart disease deaths. And that will be because some of those people who would have died of heart disease will die of COVID. But it means that the competing risk factor is not enough to overcome the fact that, that we have this t- terrible epidemic upon us. And we will see excess mortality in 2020, I guarantee it. I just can't tell you exactly how, how much. And part of the reason I can't tell you how much is because it, a lot of it depends on what we do between now and the end of the year. So many, so many factors aren't clear. For those of you who just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My guest is Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. And there are innumerable questions. So while you're talking about those four classes, Andrew, though, I'm thinking in the back of my mind, what about uh, mental health factors 
that somebody is suicidal in is that that could be any one of those things so, in their so, one, two, three, or four. So those factors uh, made it in as sort of an addendum to my four points. Uh, uh, classification of COVID-related mortality. I mean, I think it's still in the realm of speculation to say whether suicides uh, will increase uh, 2020, but it's possible they, they will. Economic factors may also come into play, but actually during economic depressions, we don't actually, and this is counterintuitive, I realize, but we don't often see increases in mortality. In fact, sometimes right. we see just the opposite. Uh, decreases in mortality. Life expectancy expanded during the Great Depression, not not shrunk. I um, had heard that, and it does yeah. it does amaze the mind. But yeah, but then exactly. then one so, can so see. So we are definitely in for uh, an economic recession right now. I mean, I mean, today's unemployment numbers were the highest they've been in sixty years or or, or even, more, yeah, or yeah. more, yeah, uh, ninety years. And um, I mean, the only reason that the you know, I mean, but it was to nobody's surprise. So, I mean, everyone knew that that was going to be the case. So, um, but the thing is, so, you know, it's just not clear that that causes directly um, an increase in mortality. We'll have to pour over the suicide numbers very closely. Um, and, you know, maybe maybe there'll be fewer homicides as, as even though there may be more suicides because, you know, of the lockdown. So it's just, there's a lot of unknowns and I actually am expecting sort of the direct direct and the direct indirect numbers to be of greater uh, yeah more more important than than anything uh having to do okay. with what the, the economy does which is you know not to make light of of the problem of of suicides in the american i mean we're, we've been talking having a pretty wide ranging conversation here and we've been talking about germany and new zealand and in taiwan but uh in the united states suicides are are quite high although there are Western countries with higher suicide rates than ours, and our suicide rates have been uh, increasing a bit. Mm -hmm. in the last few years. So, you know, it, again, it's not to make make light of that fact. It's a, it's a, an important public health problem, but it's just I think it's too early to say that the economic downturn that we are experiencing right now. It's too early to say that that will ipso facto result in suicide. It may well be, you know, when we pour over the the final numbers that we see it, another increase this year in suicides. And I'm, I'm not saying that we won't, but that's not the the thing foremost in my mind when I when I'm thinking about mortality related to the pandemic. Well, that's the straight shooting we're looking for to, to interpret this. Andrew, I've got a ticket to Chicago that I intended to use for travel to the now canceled July 13 Democratic National Convention. So the convention isn't happening. I still have the ticket. I know I won't get a refund for it because of the, the, the purchase. Would you use that ticket anyway if you had one? I, I mean, unless, unless, I mean, no, I wouldn't. I mean, I, I, non-essential travel is, is off the uh, is off the, the docket for the summer for, for me. And so that's my good faith advice to the KUCI listeners. Uh, don't, don't go anywhere that you don't have to go. And uh, so non-essential, that's the theme of the, all the decisions we're making. So, well, there are many other questions to explore the immediate UCI institution, but we will save that for, let us visit that for the first time, re-interviewing you when the university system has determined the way in which it's going to open up again. There were some interesting things I wanted to post to your dean, and I'll save those for you if you, Dean, to come back to ask a neighbor, Andrew. 
I, I would love to be on Ask a Neighbor on the mighty KUCI-FM. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for taking all of this extra time. I know how sought after you are. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. My guest was Andrew Neumer, UCI epidemiologist, professor in population health, disease prevention, and public health. Telling it like it is. Thanks again. You can listen to the Orange County portion of this interview posted in part two of this May 12, 2020 program on my website, askaleader.com. Well, that was my wrap. Next week, the clergy and laity united for economic justice, clue representatives to be determined, are really stepping up their game on the labor and immigrants' rights fronts, helping at-risk communities survive amidst this pandemic. Talk with you next week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. <laughs>